0: really kind of started this heresy, or how it became known later on in, in the, the centuries. These guys rejected the Trinity because they could not reconcile it with science and philosophy. You may have friends that may, may, maybe you here in the room right now, you're like, I can't reconcile the Trinity with science, philosophy, math, right? And, and you're just questioning, how can I believe this stuff? Because I don't, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, That's what they thought as well. They thought Jesus was just a man who was adopted by God but given divine powers. They taught he died on a cross not to atone for sin but only as an example, only as an example of the kind of life that we should live, the suffering example that we should also live. So at first this heresy was named after these guys. It was called Socinianism, named after them. Later it's called Unitarianism. In the 1700s, the Unitarian Church got started in America and included people like John Adams and John Quincy Adams, so the second and the sixth president of the United States. Um, this is; These would be two men that would really be classified as Unitarian. Not, they might call themselves Christian, but we would not define them as Christian. We would say they're Unitarian Universalists. And the Unitarian Church shares a lot with the Batman heresy. They reject the Trinity. They believe Jesus was just a good man, teacher, role model, example, but they don't believe he was God. Some might even say, now we believe he did some miracles and that he was empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to do these miracles. Many Unitarians have also adopted something called universalism, which is the idea that nobody really goes... And spends eternity separated from God, like everyone just ends up with God or whoever this God being is in the end. This next picture is a picture of the unit from the pulpit, a Unitarian Universalist church in Houston. These people, they believe that everyone will be saved regardless of religion, morality, life choices, and I actually had to stand at this very pulpit in that church and do my uncle's funeral. He was an atheist. And my aunt, his wife, goes to this church in Houston, and um, he asked me to do his funeral. And I'm sitting there going, how do I do a funeral for my atheist uncle in a universalist Unitarian (laughs) church? Like, what am I going to talk about in that setting, right? And so I tried to honor his wishes and just tried to have a ministry of presence so I was able to say things like, you know, Uncle Mark, like, here's what— he, I didn't say, you know, here's what he believed and here's what I believe. I just said, obviously, I'm a Christian pastor. Like, I don't believe everything that he believed, but he asked me to do his funeral. And so I'm going to honor him as much as I can in this funeral. And so having to stand in front of this crowd of mostly non-Christians in a universalist church doing a funeral for an atheist person, and what much of what the people of that church believe— would fall in line with what would be considered the old school, like, adoptionism heresy. If you said that to them, they may not be like, yeah, yeah, we believe that. But that's kind of where it began many, many years ago, if you understand that. So how do you know if you've fallen for this heresy? So if, if if you like Jesus and you believe he did some miracles but don't think he was really God, well, that's kind of the adoptionism or the Batman or the Green Lantern heresy. If you believe he died on a cross but not to pay for sins, but only as an example for us of selfless suffering, and that's all it was, then you're falling for the adoptionism heresy. So what does the Bible say? We're going to get to the Bible now. So the Green, the Green Lantern heresy is similar to the Batman heresy. Batman heresy says Jesus was just a good man. Green Lantern says he was a good man, adopted by God, given the Holy Spirit, just like Hal Jordan, given the ring of power. In Philippians, Paul addresses this. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Chapter 2, we're looking at verses 5 through 8. Whenever you read Paul, it just sounds like he's just spouting out theology, doesn't it? Whenever you read Paul, it just looks like here's a really smart guy who has way too many words, and he's just spouting off, let me just tell you all the things I know. And you're just like, and you're like, oh, Even Peter's thought that. The the writing of Peter, he says, that guy Paul, he's hard to understand. The Bible says that Paul was hard to understand, and he is. So there's always a story behind it, though. It's never just Paul spouting out all the stuff he knows. There's always a context and a story why he's saying what he's saying, and that's what happens in Philippians chapter 2. The Philippians are dealing with disunity and pride And so Paul writes this passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So to deal with this messy relational problem in Philippi, Paul appeals to the person of Jesus. Here's what that tells us. What we believe about Jesus affects how we act. Theology matters. I know we always think like theology is like just the academic stuff. No, it's not the academic stuff. It is the day-to-day stuff. And what you believe about Jesus Matters. And you will often see whenever people start getting off the path and start buying into certain heresies theologically, it almost always leads to real sin in the people that adopt that heresy. There's always the connection. Is it any wonder that someone like a David Koresh in Waco gets off on some heresies? and then suddenly ends up with like 20 wives. No, it's not coincidence. If you're willing to fall for some lies and be a propagator of lies theologically, then you're going to fall for some lies in your everyday life and be a propagator of lies in your everyday life. So theology always matters. It always matters. So what is Paul saying here? In verse 6, he says, That Jesus was in the form of God. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? Doesn't that sound like the heresy we've been talking about? That he was, maybe he wasn't really God. He was just in the form of God, whatever that means. Well, here's what it means. It means he's fully God and has always existed with the Father. You might say, why does it say form? Well, form in the Greek actually means essence. So same essence as God. He possesses everything it takes to be God. Jesus has everything it takes to be God. He's not created, he's not adopted, and he's always been God. Then why does it say he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Isn't that also confusing? Well, we would say even though he's equal with God, he didn't hang on to all the privileges that come with being God. I raise the next question. In verse 7, it says, Jesus emptied himself. So what does that mean? Well, it means he gave up his status and his privilege as God. So what is, when you think of emptied, we think of like taking a pitcher of water and pouring it out and emptying it. So the picture might, you might think in your mind is, well, okay, so in the picture is like his divinity, and he poured it out, you know, and it was no longer divine when he came to earth as a human. And that's not what it's talking about when it says he emptied himself. By taking the form of a man, he didn't lose his divinity, but he added humanity to his divinity. And I'll explain how this can work. So I got this analogy from a guy named Bruce Ware, a theologian. So I, did, I stole it from him. But I have some pictures I want to show you of my kids and a Ferrari in the church parking lot. This happened a few months ago. And I think I, I heard the name of it. I actually know who this guy is, but I didn't know he had a Ferrari. I'm like, dude, holding out on me here, seriously. So he, a um, guy that used to go here to TBC, I think he moved to Dallas now, but he was back in town visiting and um, I see this Ferrari in the church. like outside. I'm like, what is a Ferrari doing in the church parking lot? And uh, my kids are getting out of school, and so they love cars. They're on this car. They love car, cars right now. So I get them from school, and I go, guys, guess what? You're not going to believe what's in the church parking lot. And Landon's like, a Mustang. Child's play. And Sienna's like, a Corvette. I'm like, again, child's play. A Ferrari. And they're like, ah. And they're getting, they get in the backseat of the car, and we're, like, trying to go as fast as my Pathfinder will take us to the church. And they get in the parking lot, and they scream. They shrieked at seeing this thing. And they're like, can we get a picture? I'm like, yeah, but don't touch it. And so we get a picture. And the next picture is the, the front of the car. This is, like, a really beautiful car. And you can actually see, if you notice... You can see my Pathfinder in the background, like the very, very back but right next to the white truck. It's my Pathfinder back there. And I'm like, kids, they're basically the same thing. It's just rearranged metal, right? Same thing, right? So um, my kids are with this Ferrari. Now, here's the deal. This guy is having a meeting with Gary in the office. Now, Landon's like, Dad, can you tell me whose car this is and can he take me for a test drive? I'm like, Landon, I don't know this guy. I can't ask this guy that kind of question. And so Landon's begging me to, like, get this guy and, like, bring him. I'm like, this is beyond the pale. Like, you're not even joking. You're actually serious. I can't take you seriously right now. <laughs> so I had to, you know, squelch his little dream, and he could just see the car and not get a ride in the car. But so the guy ends up, he walks out, he leaves. But here's the deal. What if I had gone to the guy, and I said, hey, um, can I have the keys to your Ferrari? And Put my kids in the car, and what if I took his car and I drove over to Lions Park where it's really muddy? And I just like did donuts around Lions Park in the mud and the other stuff that flows through Lions Park and just got it really muddy, right? What if I did that? And then I brought it back and I was like, doop, doop, here you go, <laughs> you know? What if I did that? Well, here's the deal if I return the thing and it's just caked in mud. Okay, here's the question. Is it still a beautiful Ferrari? Yes, it is, but it's just caked in a layer of dirt. Okay? So here's the analogy that Bruce Ware likes to use. If you take a Ferrari and you cake it with a bunch of mud, you're not diminishing the Ferrari itself. The Ferrari is still the Ferrari. It's it's just got a layer of dirt on it. Alright? So that's the picture he likes to use. The car's just as powerful just as glorious, but it's just veiled by adding mud to the car, all right? And so in a sense, he says Jesus added flesh to his divinity. He added humanity to his divinity, and this is the picture that he likes to use to describe how this can work. So he's still God, but he added humanity to his divinity. A.W. Tozer says it this way, he veiled his deity, but did not void his deity. So I want to talk about how this relationship to the Holy Spirit with Jesus, how it impacts our relationship to the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, turn to Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes into the synagogue. And he stands up to read. And it's this really powerful, tense scene Whenever you read Scripture, you've got to, like, let, like, don't just read the words. Like, understand the setting and understand what's happening and the plot and how it's unfolding. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 21, we're going to read that. Jesus stands up. This is now his hometown, so he grew up there, and people see him as, like, that's just Jesus. We know who he is. But he stands up in the synagogue, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. Now watch what he reads. The prophet Isaiah, and he's quoting this from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." So you've heard about like a mic drop moment. This is like a scroll drop moment. He just hands it back, and he—it's like he made his point. We can't ignore the spirit's role in the ministry of Jesus. There's no question whenever we read the Gospels, we see the power of the Spirit in his life. But here's the question. If Jesus is already God, then why does he need the Spirit? I mean, why add more God to someone who's already God? Well, Todd Miles, I think, helps with the answer. He says, so we're advocates of the Green Lantern heresy, correct? Was Jesus just a pious but mere man? whom the Spirit was given to enable him to do all God required. The adoptionists were correct that Jesus relied upon the Holy Spirit, but they were dead wrong in why he did so. He did not need the Holy Spirit because he was not divine. He relied on the Holy Spirit because he chose to live as an authentic human. So Jesus chose to live as an authentic human, and because of that, he relied on the Spirit much in the same way that you and I need to rely on the Spirit. And here's why this is all important. If you remember back when Jesus was about to leave his disciples, he tells them that he's going to leave. And he says, but I'm going to send someone to come and help you and to be with you. And that was going to be the Holy Spirit. At that point, the Holy Spirit had not yet come in the way that he would And so John 16, 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he talks about going away, he's talking about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And there's two things we learn, I think, from this. First, if Jesus does not go to the cross... Then he cannot send the Spirit. In the Old Testament, God promised to send the Holy Spirit, but that covenant can only be initiated by blood. And it would not be the blood of bulls, goats, and sheep, but the blood that covers all human sin, which is the blood of Jesus himself. And so the Spirit can't be sent unless the one anointed by the Spirit goes to the cross. Secondly, Jesus is the one who sends the spirits. Notice in the passage, he says, I will send the spirit to you. And he's saying, you'll be better off without me. I mean, just hear the thoughts of the disciples when Jesus said that. He has spent three years with them. I mean, they're all probably terrified at this point and don't know what's going to happen to him or to them. They know the danger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They know that he's not the most popular guy with the religious establishment. They know the people love him, but the people don't have the power. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have the power. The Romans have the ultimate power. And they don't know what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away from you. And so you can hear just their, you know, their fear. They're fearful. But he says, in order for me to send someone else, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And he says, you're going to be better off, which sounds crazy. It's better for me to go and for you to get the Spirit than for me to stay here with you in the flesh. So Jesus tells them what's about to happen. Do you realize what that means when I read that? In God's eyes, a believer today is in a better place than a disciple back then who spent time with Jesus. And the question might be, why? Well, because we have the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask you, do you really believe that? Do you believe that God gives us his divine presence through the Holy Spirit, And it's the same Spirit that empowered Christ's earthly ministry. And it's not some subpar Holy Spirit. It's the same one. That when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and his finished work for you on the cross, and you want him as your Savior, that he gives you the Holy Spirit to live with you and dwell with you daily. Like you have the presence of God living with you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us power over sin, empowers you to do ministry. This means that you can't, you and I can't ever take credit for spiritual growth. We can't ever pat ourselves on the back and say, look what I did. Look how great I am. Look how holy I am. Look how spiritual I am. No, it's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. When you read through the Gospels and you see how dependent Jesus was on the Holy Spirit. Are we that dependent on Him? Just think about this. Read the words of the Gospels and see how dependent Jesus was on the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, who is God, is still depending on the Holy Spirit. That serves as a reminder for us that we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. And when I compare myself to Jesus, I don't think I depend on the Holy Spirit as much as Jesus did. And he's God. How much more do I need to depend on the Holy Spirit? How much more confidence would you have if you realize who dwells in you? How many of us think that the disciples with Jesus had it better off than we do? Have you ever said things like, You know, if I was there, if I could just see him in the flesh, then I would really believe. Then I would really, that would really fuel my faith if I could just see him in the flesh, the way the disciples. They had it much better than us. No, even Jesus says, you're wrong to think that way, because Jesus says, no, you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it's going to be better that I go and give you the Spirit than for me to stay with you in the flesh. Do you truly, truly believe that? A big misconception in the Christian life. I've heard people say things like, I just wish I had more of God. I just wish I had more of the Holy Spirit. I just wish I had more. If you're a Christian, you can't get more of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. There's a guy named David Pryor who says this. We should rather be allowing Christ to have more of us We are the disintegrated ones whom Christ is gradually making whole so that we become more like him, integrated and entire. The same argument applies to wanting more of the Holy Spirit. If he is personal, a person, then we either have him living within us or we do not. Again, our desire and prayer should be for the Holy Spirit to have more of us. So it's possible to have the Holy Spirit, but not to yield to him, and not to walk in him, and not to listen to him. So I would challenge you, if you're here this morning and you're struggling, whether it's struggling with just belief or unbelief, whether you're a Christian and you're struggling with just, I'm just struggling with certain sins right now, the question isn't, do you have the Spirit? You have the Spirit if you're a believer, but are you listening to him? Are you walking in him? Are you yielding to him? And if you're not yet a believer, the question is, this is what he offers to you. He offers you his divine presence to be with you through the Holy Spirit indwelling you and empowering you to overcome sin and temptation. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, how it speaks to us. We pray for these students as they move into discussion.